but God speaks to Jonah. He says, hey, how's that anger working out for you? How's that lonely despair, that anxiety, that, that despair, how's that helping your cause? Was it something external that caused you pain? Yes, but Jonah, don't forget, I'm still at work. You're listening to a sermon series titled, Jonah, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Look with me at Jonah chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let's pray together. Great God, we thank you this morning for this freedom that we have to meet here publicly with the saints, with the people of God. And as it was prayed earlier, Lord, we want to give you all the glory and ask that if there's anyone here today that does not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior, today would be the day of salvation for them. And for all of us, would you allow us to lean in to the gospel? Would you allow us to understand by your Spirit the purpose of this text not only to apply it to our lives, but so that we can interpret it rightly and know it rightly. Father, we pray that you would glorify the Son as we study this. And we thank you, Lord, for your word, that your word is alive. It's living and active, and it has the power to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and to judge the attitudes and the intentions of the heart. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do that this morning, that you would uh, illuminate this text to us, and you, your word would have its way in us. So Uh, To that end, we love you and we thank you for this privilege, for this freedom. We lift up uh, the name of Christ around this community in Bradenton, Lakewood Ranch, Sarasota, 
We pray that, that pulpits today around this region would be filled with the word of God, filled with the name of Jesus, filled with expositional preaching and with the truth of the scriptures. We are so thankful, Lord, for this freedom and this privilege, and we worship you in Jesus' name. And all God's people together said, amen. Over five years ago, when we first started Shoreline Church, our family moved back here to our hometown uh, of Bradenton from Tampa, and we had planted Calvary Chapel South Tampa back in 2010, and it's continuing to flourish and grow today under the leadership of the elders and Pastor Joe Harris. And one of the things that we experienced up there in Tampa at our first church plant was the difficulty of providing for a young family uh, as a pastor outside of the church. So uh, providing for our young family uh, with a very young urban church plant because um, you, you really can't sustain a full-time uh, pastor in a young urban church um, that has young people and homeless people as the majority of the demographic. So we had to find outside work. And at one time in Tampa, I was carrying about three jobs outside of pastoring. Uh, just to make ends meet, and obviously that proves a little bit challenging with a young family. Uh, it's hard to be a husband, it's hard to be a dad of two young kids. Um, nothing kills your social life like three jobs as well as pastoring. So when we moved here to Plant Shoreline, we resolved that we needed enough income to um, have employment outside of the church so we could still enjoy quality family time. And God knew that we needed that, and God opened up providentially the door for me to be an eighth grade teacher as well as a middle school science teacher. And uh, I loved teaching, and yes, even teaching middle school students. It takes a unique person to teach middle school students and enjoy doing it. I think there's two of us here today that enjoy doing that, maybe three. Uh, but when I was a teacher at the school, I learned that one of the most important aspects of teaching is the need to validate learning. That is that you teach the lesson and then you test the students to ensure that what you've just taught them has been understood and grasped by them. So you give the lesson, then they are tested or quizzed to understand, to make sure that they understand what was taught. So as a teacher, that's the order you do it. You first give the lesson and then you give the test. But listen, church, our God operates differently. Let me put it on the screen. God will often give the test so that we will learn the lesson. As we conclude the book of Jonah, we come to the entire purpose of this book, and we are going to learn the lesson. The reason that God had sent Jonah to Nineveh and the reason Jonah had run from this commission, these are the same. So if God's purposes were simply to reach Nineveh, if that was it, then the book of Jonah should have concluded last Sunday at the end of chapter 3, but it doesn't. So what we're going to see today is one more object lesson for Jonah to truly learn. And listen, it's for him to understand the mercy of a gracious and good God who sometimes will relent from his wrath. It, it kind of keeps existing out here for Jonah, and, and in his merciful grace, God wants Jonah himself to experience God, not just to have a theoretical or theological understanding, but a personal understanding. And so something happens to Jonah personally that will put all of the rest of the book into perspective, not only for him, but also for us. So if you're taking note today, here's where we're going as a, um, a sermon. 
Um, we're going to look at four different aspects of this text. So if you're taking note or take a picture, uh, if you're watching from home, you can do a screenshot. We're going to see in verses 1 through 4, Jonah's anger at God's mercy. But then, ironically, we're going to see in verses 5 and 6, Jonah's joy at God's mercy. We're going to go on to verses 7, 9 and see Jonah's now anger at God's wrath. And then finally, we'll see God's mercy for Nineveh in verses 10 and 11. So that's kind of our outline. We're going to start in verse 1. Note with me Jonah's anger at God's mercy. At the beginning of verse 1, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, all we have in the, on the Hebrew is the word it, but to understand why it displeased Jonah, why is he angry, we have to refer back to chapter 3, what we studied last week. And if you weren't here last week, uh, you have to maybe go back and listen to that, but we'll give a quick recap. Um, the Ninevites repented. They turned from their sin, they turned from their anger, from, or from their violence, uh, and they came to serve and worship God. Uh, now, why would that, why would the repentance of the Ninevites invoke anger in Jonah? Be, because when I read this, I wonder, why would this happen? Because every single preacher on the planet would die to get an opportunity to preach to an entire city filled with hundreds of thousands of people who all turn in faith in response to the preaching and proclamation of God. We would die to see that. Oh, I would give my life to see hundreds of thousands come to faith and, and repentance. Uh, but when it happens to Jonah, he wants to die because of their repentance. So look at verse 1. It says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. You might want to circle that word angry or highlight it, underline it. The Hebrew word here for anger is the word chara or kara. I'm going to mispronounce it. But a more accurate way to translate this than anger is to burn. So Jonah's anger is a seething, bubbling kind of rage just below the surface. It's the kind of anger that has been around for a long time, and it could just explode through the surface at any moment. And he's just seething mad. And finally, it does explode. Look at verse 2. It says, and he prayed to the Lord. He prayed to the Lord. Now, I am thankful that in this state, Jonah's action is to pray. His action is for prayer in the midst of his anger. Um, this, you could say, is what's known as a lament. Uh, the prayers and psalms of lament in the scriptures are not necessarily charging God with evil, but it's when someone in despair pours out their complaint before God and they don't sanitize it, they don't clean it up, they don't hold back, they just let it go and they share it. Now, sometimes I think that when we consider prayer, um, we pray prayers that are clean, that are sanitary and that are dishonest. When, when we pray, when we worship, sometimes we pray and sing lyrics that aren't really honest. And so I like the honesty here that Jonah's about to give the Lord in prayer. I love the honesty of a, a poem that Shel Silverstein wrote years ago. He said this, I love this poem. He says, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my Lord, my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my toys to break so none of the other kids can use them. Amen. <laughs> I like that. That's honesty. Prayer is honesty. It's, a, it's communicating to and communing with the living God who holds all things in his hands. So if there's ever a moment for us to let the formalities fade away and just to be vulnerable and to be honest, it should be in prayer. So Jonah turns to God in prayer. And what is he angry about? He's angry about the repentance of the Ninevites. Notice what he says. He says, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So Jonah says, this is why I left. Okay, finally, we get to the real reason why Jonah disobeyed God. Was it because he was tired of prophesying? No. Was it because Jonah was burnt out? No. Was it because he just needed some me time and needed some space and looked to travel and see the world? No. Jonah wasn't looking for an adventure. He was looking at a gracious God, and he says in the next part that I knew that your character would cause you, because of their repentance, would cause you to turn with love and favor to my enemies. Notice that he says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, and you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you relent from disaster. You could summarize it this way. Jonah's saying, I knew it, God. I knew that if I preached against Nineveh's evil, that could cause them to repent. And if they repent, there is that chance that you would relent from judging them. And I hate the Assyrians. And I would rather die and be thrown overboard and drown in the Mediterranean than to see them experience your mercies. Now, now note how theologically correct Jonah's prayer is where he says in verse 2, essentially mirroring Exodus 34. You can jot that verse down and look at it later. Exodus 34 uh, is a description of the character and the nature of God. We'll put it on the screen for you here, at least in summary. Jonah recounts that God is first gracious and merciful. In other words, he longs for and favors others. Not only that, but Jonah says, you are slow to anger. You do not delight in punishing the wicked. Number three, Jonah says you're abounding in love. Literally, this is loyal love or faithfulness to a covenant. You are a faithful, covenantal, loving God. You abound in love. And finally, you are one who relents from doing harm. So God, he says, you will turn from wrath if people will turn. Now, all of these are true. And Jonah knew that this list of attributes could be experienced by his enemies. And so Jonah understood the nature and character of God and in his prejudice, in his racism, you could say in his nationalism, he didn't want others to experience what he was experiencing. So when he sees these pagan, savage people repent, he's seething with anger. Look at verse 3. It says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And then the Lord asked the question, do you do well to be angry? Now, again, like the prayer from the belly of the great fish, Jonah's conversation with the Lord is filled with references of himself. The words I, me, my occur nine times in the Hebrew in just verses two and three alone. So Jonah's not concerned with extending God's glory to the nations. He cares more about his own perspective. He would rather die than to see the grace of God extended to his enemies. And so he puts his own pride, his own perspective, his own desires above the needs of real people around him who need to experience the grace of God. Now, you compare that posture to the posture of another prophet named Elijah. And look how different these responses are. Elijah said this in 1 Kings 19.4. It says on the screen, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. This is Elijah saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Why does he ask God to take his life? Well, Elijah was grieved in that moment that people had not repented, that there was still evil lurking in leadership. 
And so he was grieved by that. And he says, I, I'm no better than my father's. I didn't succeed in this. Now, Jonah was grieved that they did repent, that even the king and the leaders turned from sin. Elijah was being selfless in his prayer to take, God, take my life, whereas Jonah was the epitome of selfishness. So God asked Jonah a simple question. Hey, Jonah, is it right? Is it right for you to be angry? Now, often when we think about this, we are seeking to justify ourselves before God. We feel it's right. I'm right to feel this way. But then we come to the Word of God, and we have a proper perspective. David Gusick says it this way, God likes to ask us questions because they reveal our heart. It also puts us on proper ground before God because he has every right to question us and we owe him answers. And, and Gusick lists some questions that God asks in the scriptures. Notice this. In Genesis 3, God said, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What is this you have done? Those are great questions for Adam. In Genesis 4, he says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? What have you done? 1 Samuel 13, 11, again, what have you done? 2 Samuel 12, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Isaiah 6, God says to the prophet, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And that was to invoke Isaiah's commissioning response of, here am I, send me. Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, the most important question you can answer today, which is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Uh, Matthew 20, to someone sick, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, Luke 22, to Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And then finally, to Saul, Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus in Acts 9 and says, Saul, Saul, why? Why are you persecuting me? Uh, God often will ask us questions because they reveal our hearts. So God asked Jonah in his anger, do you do well? Is it right for you to be angry? Uh, his anger is on full display at what happens next. Notice with me the second section, Jonah's joy. First he's angry at God's mercy. Now he's joyful. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So if I can have your attention, the 40 days ostensibly have come to an end because we learn here Jonah um, sits outside the east of the city to wait for it to become destroyed. Maybe this is leading up to that. Maybe it's already expired. So he's waiting. He says 40 days. That was the command to communicate to them. And so he's waiting. He's watching. He builds a little booth, which the Hebrews would have been familiar with making because of the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So he builds this little shelter, this little fort. Maybe it's out of tree branches. He then hides under it. He sits in the shade and he watches the city. Maybe he's looking for uh, fire and brimstone to rain down. Maybe he's looking for the enemies to attack the outside of the city. He's not in the city because I could be judged with it. I'm going to wait outside and watch and observe and see the destruction. Maybe he was hoping from a good vantage point to see the Ninevites' repentance wasn't true. So look at verse 6. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, man, scholars love to dig into, like, what was the plant? Uh, and there's, like, books written, chapters written on what was the plant. It's even, like, used in typology. The plant was used by Jesus in some 
uh, parables. And so we get kind of sidetracked here, but most people believe and agree um, that this is a castor oil plant, uh, castor oil plant. Now, this plant, this type of plant would grow very quickly, uh, and it's large enough, it's kind of like a bush, but it's large enough to provide shade to save Jonah from his discomfort. I think we have a picture of the plant here. Uh, so very, grew very quickly, and uh, with any bit of interruption, a castor oil plant can die very quickly. So if you even, if you interfere with it at all, some of you know what I'm talking about, you don't have a castor oil plant, but you have some type of plant in your, in your garden, in your patio, and you just like look at it wrong, and it dies, right? So you don't have that green thumb, or just happen to have maybe the wrong uh, seed, or the wrong water, you're watering it. How do you have the wrong water? Anyway, um, so uh, you understand what I'm saying. So this plant grows quickly. And then it dies quickly. But notice the word save in verse 6. This is important. It says to save him from his discomfort. And that really is the correct word here. This, does, this is not the word for ease. So it's not to ease someone's discomfort. But this word save literally means to deliver, to pull out, to save, to retake plunder. So you could say it this way. God in his mercy saved Jonah. And Jonah, because of that, was exceedingly glad for being saved. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but let's summarize this. Jonah is exceedingly pleased that he had been saved by God's mercy, but he was exceedingly angry that his enemies had also been saved by God's mercy. You see, Jonah liked to receive blessings that were undeserved and unexpected, like being saved in the fish, like being spared from drowning in the deep, like still being used by God as a prophet of Israel. But see, his enjoyment of God's mercy runs out when it comes to his enemies also experiencing the mercies of God. So he's joyful here, but in a moment he's about to be angry. But he's not going to be angry at the mercy of God. Now he's going to be angry at the wrath of God. Notice the third section, verse 7. Jonah's anger at God's wrath. It says in verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So if you're following now, now it's the next day. He's under the, he's in the, the booth, he's under the shade of this potentially castor oil plant. And then the next morning, it says that God appointed a worm. And so this worm comes along, and we're not going to get into that. Scholars love that as well. We're not going to get into that. But we can just say the Bible says a worm, it's a worm. And so the worm attacks the plant, and immediately the plant withers. So notice with me the means of Jonah's salvation. You could say the plant, the means of his salvation, had received judgment. So the mercy that Jonah now received is now transformed into wrath. Verse 8 says this. It says, when the sun rose, here's that phrase again, God appointed. This time it's not a worm, it's a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Now, we get this. We live in Florida. We understand what it's like to be outside and have the sun beating down on you, and you just feel like dying. Um, but notice with me, don't miss this, that um, in verse 8, it's a scorching east wind that, that comes. So this is a vehement wind from the east. Modern-day scientists and locals call this shamal. Um, the wind speeds average about 43 miles per hour in a shamal. They average that. And it generally will last three to four days. So this is a little bit different than a dust storm, but uh, a little bit similar. There was a, a picture I had. I don't know if we have a picture of it, but a, a graphic of the entire Persian or Arabian Gulf, and the entire thing is covered in dust. So just this huge storm that would come in. 
uh, this big wind, and it still happens even today in that part of the world. So apparently, this scorching hot wind of dust comes, and then the sun is beating down on Jonah's head. Remember, he's in modern-day Iraq near Mosul. So this could be an average temperature of 105 degrees Fahrenheit. So he's got this hot sun and this scorching, dusty wind coming in. But did you catch that phrase, God appointed? Did you catch that? God has been appointing things throughout the book of Jonah. In fact, here's a summary on the screen. In chapter 1, verse 17, God appointed, the Lord appointed a great fish. In Jonah 4, 6, the Lord appointed a plant. In verse 7, he appointed a worm. And in verse 8, he appointed a wind. All of these aspects of nature have been completely obedient to the appointing of God, except for the very man whom God appointed, Jonah. Now, let me just have your attention. This is more than just allowing. God allowed a fish. God allowed a wind. He allowed a worm. No, this is appointing. God appointed it. God is working all of this for his good pleasure, according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So he's allowing this. More than that, he's appointing it. And so Jonah, in the meantime, is faint. His comforting plant has been taken away. And now the wind and the sun are beating down on Jonah. And so he says, it is better for me to die. It is better for me to die. I think it's important just to pause for a minute on this. Because the more people that Jen and I have been talking to recently, the more people we've been talking to, the more people we're realizing are experiencing uh, locally and, and personally, they're experiencing anxiety and fear and depression and just all of these kind of mental um, struggles. And I wonder if that's part to do with the fact that uh, the circumstances we've gone through recently, lately, have caused people to be isolated or discouraged or in despair. But I think it's, it's interesting here that Jonah says, it's better for me to die. And I just want to acknowledge today, you may have had that thought before. In your despair, you may have thought, it is just better for me to not be alive, to not be on this planet. Maybe it's better for my family or better for the church, better for the people around me that I, don't, I not even live. Maybe you've been entertaining that thought. But again, the book of Jonah could have ended here, but God speaks to Jonah. He says, hey, how's that anger working out for you? How's that lonely despair, that anxiety, that, that despair, how's that helping your cause? Was it something external that caused you pain? Yes. But Jonah, don't forget, I'm still at work. You may not understand all the nuances of my plan, but I haven't called you to fully understand. I've called you to fully obey. And so the greatest answer, if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, you're entertaining thoughts of this despairing, uh, like, end of life, it, listen, it's not ultimately, the answer is not ultimately medication. It's not ultimately counseling. It's definitely not just get over it or pull up your shoelaces and move on with life. It's to rest in the perfect plan of God, which Psalm 33 speaks of. Psalm 33, 10 and 11 speak about this. It says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. And then he says this in verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So I want to encourage you today, if that's been you, if you've had those moments of despair and even wondering, why should I even be alive? God has a plan and he will bring it to pass. So rest in that, have faith in that, be at peace in the work of God in your life. Well, look at verse nine, it says, but God said to Jonah in the midst of his like, 
suicidal thought. God said to Jonah, do you, same question, but now more specific, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Again, same question, but Jonah's response is, you know what, God, I'm angry. I'm angry about Nineveh repenting and receiving your mercy, and I have a right to be angry. I have a right to be angry about the plant. That plant represented me receiving the mercy of God, and yet you took it away, and you judged it with the worm. So I would just ask this question, which one is it, Jonah? Which one is it? Are you angry about God's mercy, or are you angry about God's wrath? Because you're more than willing to receive his mercy, but you bristle when someone else does. And when you experience a little bit of God's judgment in your comfort, well, now you're upset as well. And so let's come to the conclusion of this book, the lesson for Jonah in verses 10 and 11, God's mercy for Nineveh. The Lord said, here it is, this is the, this is the lesson after the test. God says to him, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. All right, so stay with me. You read that and you go, wow, 120,000 persons. Now remember, we talked about Nineveh a few weeks ago, that there was well over 600,000 people in the city. So who are the 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Uh, does that mean people are ambidextrous? Does that mean people struggle with short-term memory loss? And they're like, oh yeah, which hand do I use to write with? I don't remember. No, I don't think it's that. The people who generally don't know their right hand from their left are children. So I believe this could be a reference to children or with this new group of people who have turned in faith to God, maybe this is a new group of spiritual children. Either way, the idea is that God is concerned with a number of people and notice this, he's also concerned with their cattle. God's even concerned with the means of their provision. God's concerned with a lot more than Jonah was. And God's indictment against Jonah is that, hey, Jonah, you pitied the plant, but you didn't labor over it. You didn't make it grow. It died just as quickly as it sprang up. Remember how exceedingly glad you were for that plant, Jonah. And yet hundreds of thousands of people and even their animals have just been spared from my wrath. So shouldn't I be exceedingly glad for these people who've been created in my image? One person said it this way. We don't have the quote, but they said, the plant was temporal, but people are eternal. The plant was of little value, but people are highly valued. He says, Jonah played no part in making the plant grow, but God had every part in creating and redeeming the Ninevites. Jonah sought his own comfort, but God sought Jonah's character. Jonah cared for the destiny of one plant, where God cared for the spiritual destiny of thousands and thousands of people. You know, God is always about people first. I love what Augustine said about the city of God. He says, the city of God is a place where the inhabitants love people and walk on gold. But the city of man is a place where the inhabitants love gold and walk on people. <laughs> uh, that's so true. You see, God has empathy where Jonah has enmity. Jonah was angry at the wrath of God against his plant. But he's also angry at the mercy of God towards the Ninevites. So the lesson to be learned in the book of Jonah is that God is gracious, God is merciful, God is slow to anger, and he will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. Even the worldly mariners, even the wicked Assyrians, and even old Jonah. 
we have studied this book for the last four weeks, and uh, we've made application every week to kind of see where we fit into the story. And um, most of the time when we look at Scripture, we realize that um, when we look at the Scripture, we go, hey, I'm the hero of the story. So we kind of find David uh, defeating Goliath. We go, that's me. I'm, I'm a mighty warrior. Or, or we see Noah going into the ark, and we go, that's me. I take bold steps of faith, and I'm obedient to the Lord. Or we see uh, someone who approaches Jesus, and we go, well, that's me as well, and, and I did it the right way. Um, but we've talked about this in our, our previous studies that um, Jesus is the hero of the narrative. He's the hero of the story, and, and so it's not important for us to insert ourselves, but for us to see Jesus and then rightly see ourselves. And we've said this before, you and I are not Jonah necessarily, we're the Assyrians, right? And the plan for Nineveh was one man, and the plan for you and I is one man. And so uh, I think that's important for us to do. But the book of Jonah really is one of those books where we are to see ourselves in the story. And we are to see that we are culpable, that we're capable of the same type of mistakes that Jonah is capable of. And so I want to apply this passage of Scripture to us um, today in three ways. And studying this this week, um, I had a completely different application and then just yesterday woke up and just did not have a, a real like strong um, realization that that was the right way to go. So this is, this is um, kind of a different application, um, but I think this is really applicable for each one of us and um, I think is mindful of where we're at. So three things I'd love for you to jot down. Uh, number one, as we apply the entire book to our lives, number one, God's sovereign work quickens our faith. The book of Jonah as we've said from the beginning, is not about Jonah. Who is the book of Jonah about? Yell it out. It's about not Jonah. It's about God. It's about God. So now I gave you the answer. Um, and so it's important for us to see that this is not all about Jonah. This is about God. What we consider the instrument of chastisement in our life is often God's instrument of cultivation. So hardship sent by God can simultaneously be a work of discipline, but it can also be a work of deepening. So think about God's sovereign work in our lives lately. Maybe I can say it this way. God appointed a great fish. God appointed a plant. God appointed a worm. God appointed a scorching east wind. And in 2020, God appointed a global pandemic. You see, the things that have happened to Jonah point to a sovereign God displaying his glory in the lives of desperate people. Do we see our current situation in that same light? You see, even in trouble, we should be looking to God's sovereign work and allow that to quicken our faith. I don't want to see your hands go up, but how many of you have been tested in your faith in this last year? How many of you have been stretched in ways in relationships and in and even uh, safety and the, the, the idea of, well, I'm not sure if it's safe, that whole illusion of safety? How many of us have been tested in our freedoms or tested in our, uh, our view of the church and the essentiality of preaching the gospel and gathering together? Many of us have been challenged. We've been challenged in our families, challenged in our homes, challenged financially. And even in those troubles, we still look to God. And when we see his sovereign work behind all of it, that should cause us, it should quicken our faith. It should cause us to cry out to him and say, yes, Lord, you've been faithful 
And I thank you even for the storm. But the opposite is true as well. In other words, what if something God takes away is also a work not of his anger or wrath, but it's a work of his protection? So so this really surprised me in my study this week, but there's something extra that we should know about that little plant, the castor oil plant. Most Jewish scholars agree um, that that would have been the plant that provided shade for Jonah. What's extra here is that the castor oil plant is known biologically as Ricinus communis. I don't know if you heard that first part, but that's where we obtain the chemical biological warfare agent known as ricin. If you read about it, ricin is known as a Category B bioterrorism agent and a Schedule Number 1 chemical warfare agent. Ricin toxin can be extracted from castor beans, purified and treated to form a white powder, a pellet, or dissolved in water or weak acid and released as a liquid. So scientifically, if you're exposed at a, for a long time, prolonged amount of time, human contact with a castor oil plant, the one that possibly is looming over Jonah's head, this could cause serious health issues. If you ingested just a few of those beans, that would cause acute gastroenteritis and potentially kill Jonah. So I just think, you know, again, that's reading between the lines. We can't make a strong case there, but it could be that what Jonah saw as a comfort in his life was removed by God in order to actually save his life. And can the same thing be true in our lives? Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a relationship or a hobby, something that we think that God owes us, and yet when it's taken away, we see, wow, my joy wasn't in the Lord. My joy was in the shade and comfort that that thing that wasn't the Lord provided. And sometimes that shade can be a threat to us. But God's sovereign work When we see his work, whether what we perceive as good or evil, when we see him working, that quickens our faith because the instrument of chastisement is often the instrument of cultivating our relationship with the Lord. So secondly, as we apply this book to our lives, number two, God's salvific work should quicken our joy. In this chapter, the only thing more shocking than Jonah's bad attitude is God's amazing grace, right? The only thing more shocking than his bad attitude is Jonah's amazing grace. One person says this about Jonah. It says, the book of Jonah focuses on the saving work of God. Here in this book, the Lord deals with three classes of sinners, all desperately in need of his grace. First, Jonah. Jonah was a sinner in attitude and action, even though he professed to be a worshiper of Yahweh. Secondly, the sailors were heathen men who had never received any knowledge of the living God. They were basically good men as the world counts goodness. Considering their lack of exposure to the written word of God, these sailors display some spiritual sensitivity. But thirdly, the Ninevites. The Ninevites were also idolaters, but no one considered them good. Even their king recognized the besetting sin of his people was violence, man's inhumanity to man. On the scale of sin, they were at the Sodom level. Yet, they too experienced his grace. Thus, the book of Jonah would underscore that God loves sinners of all kinds. He reaches out to them. He offers them his mercy and his forgiveness. Jonah should have seen the redemptive work of God in the Assyrian Empire, and he should have applauded it. He should have celebrated it. But instead, he scoffs at it. All of heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. And yet some of us, myself included, we hear about a conversion in someone's life, and then we question the quality of it, as if there's a greater quality of a conversion over here than a conversion over here. There's no greater quality of conversion 
All salvation is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit regenerating someone from death to life. And so we should rejoice in the saving work of God on behalf of undeserving sinners. But I wonder, when's the last time you just rejoiced in the God of your salvation? I remember um, years ago, I was mowing the lawn. Uh, just talk about random. And I had worship music on, and I'm just kind of pushing the mower this way, and then I'm pushing the mower this way, and, you know, the monotony of mowing. Um, well, some of you have lawn guys, but, you know, for those of us that are, you know, actually gritting it out, I'm pushing the mower here, I'm pushing it there, um, and all of a sudden, this song comes on, and I realize I'm saved. And so I, like, had the mower where you, you, you have to hold on to it, and you let go, and it kind of turns off. Thankfully, that's a safety feature. I let go, and the mower stops, and I just like, it's a little Pentecostal, but I start raising my hands in the middle of my lawn. I'm like, thank you, Lord, that I'm saved. Ladies walking by, you know, walking her dog. I'm like, I'm saved. I, I'm, I'm redeemed. I'm born again. And then I just kind of looked around. Okay, thank you, Lord. Let me start the mower again. But has that, has that gripped you? Has that ever gripped you, the fact that you are saved by Jesus' blood, that, that you realize what God in Christ has done to, to pull you out? of hell and death. Uh, Has there ever been a time that you scoffed at someone's testimony? Maybe you sat from afar and you just said, I'm just going to watch and kind of see how it plays out. Like, listen, we are Christians. We're in this for souls. So, So when is the last time that you prayed that God would give you souls to reach for his glory? When's the last time you wept and you pleaded with the Lord, Lord, I want to see souls saved and made alive in our city? Like when we see the saving arm of God, that should revitalize our joy and we can celebrate eternally um, to see those lives that are eternally changed. So God's salvific work should quicken our joy. And finally, number three, God's sanctifying work quickens our love. Quickens our love. Uh, Amazing man of God, J. Robertson McQuilkin said this. He said, a world no matter how lost will not move me to action while I'm mired in self-love. On the other hand, once I'm freed to make choices on the basis of compassion for others, the need of lost men and women does indeed become compelling. And what more compelling need is there than billions of people who today face a Christless eternity? The terrifying lostness that envelops most of this world, pressing them with inexorable acceleration toward the blackness of hell. If this does not move us to action, what will? Maybe it's not overseas, Maybe it's just taking the gospel with a co- to a coworker, or praying with that family member. Are we willing to be made uncomfortable in a conversation in order to see that person repent and trust Christ and to experience God's favor and love? See, what God is after in the heart of Jonah is a love for others and a compassion even for his enemies. And God's willing to do a sanctifying work in Jonah to bring him to that point of self-sacrifice to draw out his love for others. Now, this may come to a surprise to you, but Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. Just think about that for a minute. Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. He could have finished at the end of chapter three and been like, best preacher ever. You know, drop the mic. I did it. Look at what I've accomplished. How many people did you reach? Because I reached an entire city. He could have ended there. But see, the Bible reveals all of our imperfections. And thankfully, we see the sanctifying work of God even in Jonah's rebellious attitude. In verse 11, we learn God is concerned for the people of Nineveh, but Jonah wasn't concerned about anyone but himself. Now, in our cultural, current cultural climate, is there any group of people that you and I 
would have discrimination against, where you'd say, I don't want that type of person to come to faith. I, I doubt there's any shoreliner here that would say, yeah, there's a particular race that I don't want to see come to saving faith. I doubt that. I'd be very surprised by that, and, and we would have that conversation. Uh, but I wonder if there's someone who disagrees with us politically, would, and they're militant about it. They're going to vote for someone completely different than you in the fall, and they've even got the signs in the yard and the banners and the stickers on the car. Would we be willing to see that person on any side of the aisle come to saving faith? Would we be willing to see a convicted felon come to saving faith? Would we be willing to see a protester who's rioting? Would we go and share the faith with them? Would we be willing to see even someone who's a member of Antifa come to saving faith? faith. If you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone who believed completely differently, who lived completely differently than you, would you be willing and desiring and praying that God would give you an opportunity? You see, Jonah represented exactly where Israel was as a nation. They were selfish, they were sinning, and they too were not beyond God's judgment. One person said this, God's plan was to teach Israel by the example of Nineveh how inexcusable is their own impenitence and how inevitable their ruin if they persevere. Repenting Nineveh has proved herself more worthy of God's favor than apostate Israel. The children of the covenant have not only fallen down to, but actually below the level of, the, of a heathen people. Israel, therefore, must go down and the heathen rise above her. You see, part of God's sanctifying work in us is to produce love through us to people who we were previously like, the undeserving. Israel was unrepentant, and yet at the same time, they were called to enjoy God's grace and extend his glory to the nations. Now, in an ultimate sense, this would not be fully realized until the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was born in the line of Abraham. And so as we close this study, I want to just draw some parallels between Jonah and Jesus. I want you to close your Bibles, and I want to just consider this for a few minutes. And we'll close in just a moment and worship. What was displeasing to Jonah about his own message was the very thing that motivated the message of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was in very nature God. Jesus was true to who the Father was, the express image of the invisible God. And Jesus knew that by dying in our place, being the sole mediator between man and God, God would relent and have compassion even while we were yet sinners. Remember, Jonah looks out at the city of Nineveh and he grinds his teeth because he wants them to incur the wrath of God while he's comfortable under the shade of the plant. But Jesus also looked out over a city, the city of Jerusalem. And instead of having anger, he had compassion and he wept because he wanted to spare them from the wrath of God and gather their children under the shade of his wing like a hen gathers her chicks. But she was unwilling. Jonah, remember, was sent to a hostile people, to the enemies of the people of God. And Jesus likewise came to a hostile people, not just the Jews, but to mankind, to you and I, of which the scriptures declare in Ephesians 2, we by nature are children of wrath. Jonah ran from God because he knew that the undeserving Ninevites would not feel the wrath of God but they'd receive the message of redemption. And instead, Christ didn't run away from, but to the Father, his face set to the cross, because likewise he knew that the Father would place upon himself the wrath that he didn't deserve. And he would bear in his place the place who did not deserve it. So the purpose of this book, again, 
is that like Nineveh, we need a prophet to come and reveal the nature of God to us, that we would respond in faith and repentance and receive mercy, pity, grace, and love. Jonah may have been thrown overboard during the tempest because of his folly, but in the trial of crucifixion, Jesus endured the shedding of his blood, not for himself, but for you and for me. And yet three days swallowed up in death, Jonah arose out of the belly of the fish to preach the good news. And we as Christians, of course, celebrate the fact that Jesus on the third day conquered death and sin and rose from the grave. And now we bear the great news that Jesus is alive. There is now perfect hope, perfect salvation, perfect redemption, even for Ninevites like you and me. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. And he said in Matthew 12 that he was greater than Jonah. And see, that's the greatest lesson that we learn from this incredible book. And I'm so thankful that God in his grace continues to pursue and redeem the wayward and the prodigal. He did that in my life. He can do that in your life. Will you repent and will you trust Christ today? Let's pray together. Bow our heads. Father, we thank you that your plan for Nineveh was one man, Jonah. And your plan for this fallen, corrupted, sinful world where men are filled with depravity, your plan for us is one man, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came and the sign of Jonah was given to Israel, being dead yet three days and yet rising again. We thank you, Jesus, for what we have in you, that because of your redemption, we now have eternal life. And for anyone here, Lord, who's not yet repented, turned from their sin, um, died to sin, and now been made alive to Jesus Christ, we pray that they repent and they trust Christ. Father, draw them to saving faith. We pray that they would respond today to your drawing. And Father, we thank you for your glory and your sovereignty in the midst of Jonah's life and in the midst of our lives, that you appoint all these things that we may call evil or we may call good. But Lord, you promise to work it all for the good of those who love you and for the good of your glorious grace. We thank you that today we can worship and serve the living God who didn't spare his own son, but who gave him and who will also give us all good things. We worship you, Lord. We love you. We thank you, Lord, that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. That though we feel our sins would, would outweigh the scales of God's love, thank you, Lord, that yet there's more mercy. As Paul would say to the Romans in chapter 6, that God gives us more grace. We shouldn't go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means. But today, Lord, there's a way, there's a provision for our sins. So we thank you for that. We worship you today. We love you. We thank you for this great study. Lord, help us to take this great message, this great news to the nations and even across the street. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Freedom Elementary School on State Road 64. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.